0: All right, we're in the book of Hebrews. We're doing a series on the book of Hebrews. And I know every week I review. So this week I'm not going to review, really. Um, I just, and partly because the author now is kind of taking, this just blesses my heart. This is a rabbit trail. We're going on a rabbit trail with a writer of Hebrews, kind of. And um, I love that because I like rabbit trails and give in to them maybe too much. Years ago... There was a TV show, I don't know if you know the TV show, um, it was called, uh, it's called Arrested Development. Yeah, okay, there's some people, I'm, and uh, it was about the Bluth family. It was a family, the, the, the patriarch of the family uh, was a multi-millionaire, he was developing in this multi-multi-million uh, housing complex, you know, upscale housing and all this stuff, and... Um, there we go, thank you. I'm just trying to get that on there. Uh, he was developing this, this huge housing complex, and he embezzled, and he got caught, and he got sent to prison. And the show is about this family, if any of you have seen it, and if you haven't, it's about this family that were incredibly rich and now are not incredibly rich. Everything's frozen, right? And they are all incredibly immature. And so what you see is the matriarch and the children acting like middle schoolers? And actually, that's an insult to middle schoolers. I don't want to say that. Acting incredibly immature. The the show was known for it, was, it was well written and very witty, right? And I, I'm not sitting here telling you to go back and watch it because I, I, I didn't watch all of it because there were some times where I was like, this is too much for me, and I turned it off. Sometimes it got too much in different areas, and, and I would not watch parts, um, but what got me was the two most mature people in the show were the middle schoolers. The two children, the grandchildren of the patriarch and the matriarch, they were, they were the most reasonable and, and mature people. Uh, the star, Jason, Jason Bateman, was fairly much that way, but he had his moments. And and it was just a comedy based on watching people be denied what they want and throw hissy fits over it. All right? So if you don't like that kind of stuff, you would definitely not like this show. And the name of the show was Arrested Development. And it was a it was a it was like a pun. It was the fact that the development and the developer, the development had stopped because the developer was arrested. And also it was because all of these people were living like they were 12. Their development was arrested, arrested development. That's what the name of it was. So this is my first point. A case of arrested development. Now, I want to tell you what's going on. The writer of Hebrews has been dealing with these people, and he's been, he's been telling them and correcting some things and really trying to show them, you know, you got to, Jesus is better. That's the whole thing he's all about. You know, Jesus is better than the angels. They really revered angels. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is, is better. He's better than Moses, right? He's better, and it's all about that, and it will continue in that way. But he's going to take this little excursus. He's going to take this little rabbit trail, and he's going to, I almost entitled this a slap in the face. He's going to shake them. He's going to get in their face, and it can be hard. It can be hard for us to read, because it's, it's to us also, right? And the key is, in life, you really need to have someone who loves you enough to get in your face. In life, you really need someone, and this can be hard to find, someone who loves you so much that they will tell you something they know you don't wanna hear. They will do that because they love you, right? And, and it's, it's, but it's a powerful thing when you get that in your life because you get someone that you know, this person loves me and they are giving, they are giving it to me. And if it's coming out of love, and I may, and I can do that. I, I can do that. People talk to me lovingly sometimes and I know it's out of love, but I don't like what they're saying because I didn't want to hear it. And so I push back. I push. But what happens is then God starts working on me and inevitably I end up going to them an hour later, a week later, a month later, a year later. go to them and I say, you're right. Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. I needed that. You were right. You were right. That's a hard thing to be able to say. So a case of arrested development. Verse 11, we have much to say about this. All this stuff he's been talking about, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Moses, Jesus, you know, all that stuff. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand, all right? So he's saying, you, you, you're, you're not understanding what I'm saying. It's, this is in your face, but there are times when we need this. Oftentimes in those things, and let me just tell you, because some people are like professional truth-tellers, they just love to get in people's faces, all right? I don't know if you ever met somebody like that, but they can be a little too much. You have to balance something. You have to balance what a person needs to hear with what they're able to hear. You have to balance how far you go in these things. You know, Jesus talked about this when he talked about throwing pearls before swine. Pearls couldn't recognize, I mean, Pearls. swine couldn't recognize the value of the pearls that were right in front of their noses they just it'd get gobbled up in the slop he says so don't throw pearls so be careful there's a balance here but there has to be truth telling and this here the writer is saying he's telling them there's a lot i want there's a lot i need to say to you there's a lot i want to tell you to help you live in a manner that honors christ but It is hard for you to understand. It's hard for you to grasp because you've given up. And giving up can take a lot of different forms in in our lives. Maybe it can be just quitting. People just say, I'm done. I quit. Maybe it's getting too comfortable. And you say, I'm good. I'm happy. I'm content. I'm satisfied right where things are at. And they quit. Maybe you become immune to it. Sometimes we can become immune to the things of the gospel because we're so used to it. We've heard it so many times. And so it doesn't affect us anymore. You know, the Greek word there is the the word nothros, and it means to be sluggish or lazy, but it has this idea that you're good with the status quo. In fact, the root of the word is a positive word. The root of the word means to push, and the negative that's added to it means to stop to stop pushing, to stop pressing, to stop moving. He says, you have stopped. You've quit for whatever reason. You know, for some of them, it's not because they're comfortable. Life has gotten difficult and they're thinking of quitting. But sometimes for us too, it can be that or it can be, oh, I'm just so comfortable. I'm not really pushing like I used to. And here's the key. This is a choice that people make. This is a choice that we make. All of us. We are making decisions every day. But the biggest choice in a situation is this. Do I try to be more like Jesus or do I settle for the way things are? That is a huge choice. And he's saying to them, you're in this situation and you have decided settle. You're not pushing anymore. No thrust, no more push, no more movement forward now to the hebrews to whom this was written and they're encountering the difficulties they're encountering this is really where the rubber meets the road now this was most likely written think about this when nero was in power the book of hebrews most likely was written when nero was caesar and persecution was a real thing for christians one of the worst times in for that matter and the writer here is saying, your spiritual senses are dulled because you let them be dulled. You've put yourself in a dangerous place. When our kids were little, you know, um, when, when, when we had uh, three kids, it was so easy to travel because I could find a little inexpensive motel and we could all sleep in the same room, but there's a law that you can't have more than five in a room. And so when, when we made the huge mistake of having two more kids, and one of them is here at the moment No. so now we have to rent two rooms, and it's not so cheap. But there was one thing, uh, apart from pool, that our kids, especially when they were real small, that they loved, and that was motels have cable. We didn't have cable, you know. That was no, we're not. We that was a luxury we could afford. We. But we would get to a motel and they were like, yes, we can watch things that we don't ever watch. This is so great. No more dad adjusting the, you know, the the rabbit ears and and fiddling with, uh, you know, trying to get a fuzzy station to come into focus. And so we would go, and we would, we would get two rooms that were adjoining so the kids could run back and forth, and we could play with them. I said, okay, we're going to watch. I was going to watch. I said, let's watch uh, Discovery Channel. Yay, yeah, yay, yeah, yay. Yeah. And I said, oh, look, you know, here's a show on lions. Let's watch a show on lions. And they were all excited. And so we watched the show, and the narrator is uh, they're always British or Scottish because Americans think that a British accent is smart sounding, right, you know? And so you'll always see, uh, the, he would be saying, the lions have surrounded the pack. Quietly, and they always whisper, quietly, they're moving in for the kill, right? And they're surrounded this pack of, you know, wildebeest or jackalopes or heffalumps, whatever it was. And, uh, and so it, 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 in that moment, <laughs> I made a huge mistake. I made a huge mistake. So there's this one heffalump that is out from the group, right? And so the lions spot that. And they start closing in and closing in. And and so I know what's coming, but they don't, you know. And I'm like, let's name that one Bambi. Let's name that one Bambi. That's so dumb. Okay, so you know, then they're saying what, what would happen is they get close enough before they're spotted, and if the pack's here and the one's here, they, they grab, a roar happens here, so they all bolt, right? But the pack's bolting away from the, the one that's trying to catch the pack, and they just swing in behind the pack, close that one off, and you know what happened, right? You know what? he's heffalumps on the meals, boys. So this happens, and Regan, our daughter, goes, they're eating Bambi! And she runs out of our room into the adjoining room. And I learned from that we have two rooms. One TV watches watches you know things being eaten, one TV watches something else, Cinderella, or something like that. That's, that's not as intense. In First Peter 5:8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And the whole point of that discovery show is they're saying this one little animal, this one, you know, wildebeest, has gotten away, wandered a little far from the safety of the pack, got itself into a dangerous situation, and the lions took advantage of it. And what he's saying here is, we can do that. Peter is saying, we can do that. And these people, they stopped growing. They stopped pushing, moving forward. And they've placed, the writer's telling them, they, you have placed yourself in a dangerous situation. You've placed yourself in a dangerous situation. And Jesus talks about this so many times. And he, when he, when he talks, he always says, let him who have ears, let her who have, has ears, hear. What is he saying? Do you understand? Do you understand? Because this is what can happen, right? We hear stuff about how God is working or what God wants to do in your life. And listen, every teacher knows this. I'm I'm a little higher up. I'm looking down. I see it. I see the elbows. I'm talking about something about living for God and how you got to stop doing this. And I just see, boop, subtle elbow. And I see somebody go, like that make a face i see those communications but here's the thing he's not saying this is for your neighbor he's saying this is for you this is for you we have to be careful that our spirit our our senses aren't dulled that we have stopped moving forward and jesus when he says let him who have ears hear he's saying are you listening that's why, and we went over this in the book of John. Every once in a while, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He uses a double that forces them. He says, listen. It's like he's yelling at them or shaking them. Listen, this is important. You stop pushing. You stop moving forward. We can fall into this dif- different, difficult time in our lives. We can fall into getting comfortable. I say fall. We, we do it ourselves. We get complacent. Our walk with Christ becomes routine and mechanical. We give when, it, when it's convenient. We stop pushing. No thrust. We stop moving forward. And we settle for what we got. And God is always saying to us, what you have right now is not as good as what's coming. There's more, and it might be what's coming tomorrow, what's coming next week, what's coming next month. Whatever it is, don't quit here. Don't quit here. I remember um, I remember uh, hearing an interview with a guy who'd been caught in a number of problems and issues and been arrested. And, and anyways, they just said, the person just said, your life is, is you're, it's such, it's so difficult. It's such a mess. What are you doing? And he goes, it may be a terrible life, but it's mine." And I thought, oh, it sounds like he's settling. And this can happen. We can settle. It can happen at work. It can happen in our marriage and other relationships. When we see it in other areas, it highlights this. It highlights this. It's a spiritual issue. And it is deadly in our walk with Christ. Christ. It is heartbreaking for God when he sees this happening in the lives of his children. Understand this. As we look at this, where he's rebuking these people, it's because God's heart is broken over them. It's not God going, I'm so angry. I want to smash them on the head. No, it's God going, please, please, please. Don't stop. Don't quit. I see, I see what comes. Early in the book of Romans, it talks about the wrath of God, and it says what the wrath of God is, and it's so interesting. It says, God let them go. They pushed him, they pushed him, they pushed him, they pushed him, and he said, okay, you can have it. And that was the wrath of God. When he find, he's saying, no, no, please, please, all right. And we push and we push, and God's heart breaks we settle for second best, and he tells us, oh, I've got something so much better for you. And he warns us, and he's warning us here. But sometimes he takes stronger action, and we'll get to that later in the book of Hebrews, where like a good parent, he says, I gotta, I gotta deal with this. And see, we are, like a, we, are to have, we are to have childlike faith in our walk with God, but not childish faith not immature faith. He wants us to move past that. And I know in in, in our congregation, there's so many things going on in so many different people's lives. And it's hard for us to see God working sometimes. It's hard to see God working in the midst of difficult times. But he promises that he does. In multiple places, he reassures us over and over that he can turn evil into good. He can bring good out of something evil, that he can bring beauty from ashes. He can bring growth out of difficulty and what does that do? That changes us. We become people who are more loving, more, more empathetic to others. People who understand what it is to be in the maelstrom. And in tough times, we need him so badly. We're driven to him and not to lose sight. And in this book where the writer is hammering Jesus, Jesus, Jesus over and over and over, he's telling them, this is what we need. And I want to be honest with you. I struggle with this. I can struggle. It's so easy to be distracted by all the things that are happening around me and lose my focus on Jesus. Isn't it amazing? A pastor can come to work on a Monday and be so distracted by just things that aren't necessarily important that in the end of the day, he says, I, uh, I don't know what I did today. I don't know what, what, if I did anything that was important in the kingdom of God. That's scary. That's scary. And so he's telling them, he's saying, look, stop stop settling. And then in verse 12, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You don't need milk. I mean, you need milk, but not, not solid food. He's trying to get them to see where they're at. He's saying, look, You've been called on a mission. God is working. Are you involved in it? He says, but now what do we got to do? We got to go back to the elementary truths all over again. A baby sucking on a bottle of milk is normal. If you see an adult sucking on a bottle of milk, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Even if it's some new weird fashion, like with pacifiers for a while while back there, it's, it's an anomaly. It's not the natural course of things. You've come to need milk, he says to them. This is not natural. You're living in this perpetual infancy, and it's an anomaly. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So now he's explaining this metaphor of milk. He's saying, here's the deal. It's it's an infant. That's what we're talking about here. You're being an infant. And he says, you need to become, you need to, by constant use, train yourselves. And in verse 13, he says, an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. An infant can't learn a lot of things. It's going to take time for them to learn. An infant can't make smart decisions. It's going to take time. That's what parents are for. And he's telling them that's what we have to do. We need to grow into it. We need to integrate, in a sense, we need to integrate doctrine and duty. Doctrine tells us things. It tells us, like, who we are. It tells us who God is. It tells us what God has done. It tells us where we stand and what we are in Christ. That's what doctrine does. And then duty flows from doctrine. Our problem is too many times we get duty first, right? We get so busy just doing the things, well, this is what Christians are supposed to do. We, get, we focus on duty and we get caught up working really hard and we miss the whole point. He's telling them, this is maturity, seeing who I am in Christ and what he has done for me, getting overwhelmed by the overwhelming, never-ending, precious love of God and then allowing that to flow desiring for that to come out of my life and affect others. And that's where we begin to see the joy and the blessing in the doing, in the duty. That's when we begin to see the purpose and the fulfillment in obedience. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's saying we're not eating We're not to be eating baby food. We're supposed to be the mature ones. And it says constant use. This is this idea. It's got to be training. There's got to be a training involved, working hard at discerning good and evil. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and correctly handles the word of truth. He's saying the word of truth is the key to being a good worker. Understanding what the Bible says is important for us because it shows us who we are, who God is, what life is all about. The word of God is the key to living life the way it was meant to be lived. The word of God is the key for you to become the person you were made to be. Then as you mature, your ability to distinguish, to distinguish sharpens, to be able to see good and evil, he says. "He Be able to make decisions even in dangerous situations. I know some of you would be surprised to learn that there were times in my life I was less than the ideal father. Sometimes my wife would be like, oh no, this is not good. Bob, what are you thinking? And I would be like, what? This is good. It's fine. It's not that dangerous. And she would be like, God help us. Run, kids, run. You know? And distinguishing, dangerous. What's dangerous? What's not dangerous? What's smart? What's not smart? And I don't always it's discernment. I don't always have good discernment. I think my wife is gifted in the area of discernment. I'm so thankful for that because we still have five kids. And that is success in my book right there. That is success. <laughs> One time we, there, there was a hurricane coming. It wasn't strong. It was before, you know, This is 30 years ago, and and so it's like a tropical storm. So I loaded all our kids in the beach, in the beach. I loaded all our kids in our van and took it to the beach. And it was before they they rearranged Virginia Beach where you could drive up an alley right to the edge of the sand, right to the edge of the boardwalk between hotels, all right? Which sounded like a great idea to me, right? It's blowing, this is so cool. Do you have power of the wind? You know, this kind of a thing. And I pulled into that alleyway, and I was just like, whoa. Because, you know, physics. Between these two tall buildings, these 55-mile-an-hour winds are funneling, and they're going a lot faster. And all of a sudden, our van is going, it's rocking like that. And so, I, being smart, I put on the park brake and uh, put it into park, and I say, who wants to get out? my wife is like no gift of discernment stay close to mummy kids you're safe here you know I'm like come on Derek my oldest son come on and he goes yeah let's do it and so I which was it was surprisingly hard to open the door (laughs) I wasn't quite ready for that luckily the side was a slide you know so Derek just slid that puppy open and was like five feet back instantly and kind of recovering I went over and grabbed his hand you know and then I got him behind a big pillar so he could duck out and go back a few feet and then get behind the pillar. And I said, okay, girls, who wants to come? And they're all like, no, save us, mommy, save us from dad. And Cody, <laughs> he's just a little, a little donkey. He's, he's not my smartest. He's like, me, me, dad, I want to be out there. And so I went, I grabbed his hand and we stepped out. And he just, if he spread both arms out, he just picked up off the ground. It was the coolest thing in the world. And I was just like, this is awesome. Look what I get to do for my kid. You know, I just kind of not let go. You know, and I stuck him behind the pillar with Derek and they would duck out and Cody would just get bowled over and crawl back. And, and uh, then after a bit, we got back in the car and drove away. And, and, I, and I was thinking, that might not have been the smartest thing I've ever done. Yeah, because Cody could have whacked his head as he was doing his bowling ball imitation. And discernment, and he's saying here, he's saying here, the word of God begins to train us so that we have discernment between good and evil, between right and wrong, in difficult situations, even dangerous situations. Just like the Israelites, when they went to the promised land the first time, they they sent 12 spies into the land. All 12 spies came back and said, This land is incredible. It is amazing. It's fruitful. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But 10 of them said, And they are warriors. We're a bunch of ex slaves. They're trained. They're big. They got muscles, man. They're crazy looking. We cannot take it. And two of them said, Yes, we can. We got this God that's, that opened the Red Sea. These people are nothing to him. We can do it. Don't listen to these 10 bums, you know? And, and, and that's what's going on. And they, they couldn't discern in a dangerous situation between right and wrong. And what did they do? They took what looked like the safe way out. They said, we're not going in. We're not going in. And we studied this earlier. They did not enter the rest that God had for them. They missed something. They missed something. What did they do? He chose poorly. Remember that, when they were looking for the cup of Christ? And the first guy in goes, it must, he's a king. It must be a gold cup. And he grabs the most ornate gold cup and he drinks it and he just disappears into a pile of ashes. I don't know if you saw, but the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, look at that. I'm never drinking from a goblet again. And then, you know, Indiana Jones goes, no, he was a carpenter. He was a humble man. And he found the wooden cup. And when the guy crumbled into ashes, the knight who was guarding it said, he chose poorly. And I'm like, there's the understatement of the year. Right there, that's, Our choices are so key. You're making choices right now that can define the rest of your life. You want to have discernment between good and evil. You want to have discernment in dangerous situations. You want to be able to see things for the way they are and make decisions based on that. The the Israelites at the edge of, of, of the promised land, what happened? They couldn't see the truth of the way things are. They were fooled. They were deceived. So we have a case of arrested development and we have a call to press forward. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting. We will do so. All right. You see here now, what does he do? He says, and I love this. I, this is to me one of the best parts of this. He's been telling them what they've fallen into. He's been telling them the danger of the situation they're in. He's been telling them what they need to do. And then look at in beginning of verse one, "Therefore, let us move." What is he doing? He's saying, "I'm right there with you." The writer of Hebrews is saying, "I struggle with this stuff too." I say, I say this all the time from up here. This is not me talking down to you, the wise one talking to the people that need my wisdom. That's not true. I come to you, it's like, it's like one starving person coming to other starving people and telling them, I found food. One thirsty person saying to others, I found water. That's all I'm doing here. I'm not better than anyone. And he's saying, let us move beyond He reassures the readers, I'm right there with you. I am not rebuking you just out of nowhere, some guy. He goes, let us move forward. And this is, again, a time when we need people who will tell us the hard things, even if we don't like them. And he's going to tell them, static, just a, a, a static status quo Christianity is a delusion. It's not God's will for you. The argument is, since perpetual infancy is not natural, it's anomaly, what do we do? And this is what I love, he says, this is what we do. Here we go. We move forward, he says. You're nothros, you've stopped moving. Now's the time to be thrust. just to move, let's go. It's time. Just like earlier in the book, remember where he used the word today multiple times. Today's the day. Today's the day to make a decision. Today's the day to do this. And I say it again, today's the day. He's saying, I'm just like you. It's easy to slip into. We all need to move forward. And what I love about this, he says... Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. What is he doing? He's saying, you know, you understand this. Ultimately, God is involved in this. Ultimately, this is God's job. We come to him. We read his word. We yield to him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are changed. And it's not us, our doing." Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had you get in a tough situation and you react in a way that later you go, where did that come from? Why did I not punch him in the face? You know, why did I not react strongly? And that's because God has been changing you and working on you. You'll be taken forward into maturity. The Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. And then acts of maturity become something that flows out of us. So the writer says, we don't need to redo the foundation. He says, we built that. But just remaining there. It's just like if you, if you go by, it used to be by my parents' house. There was a place, and they built for a huge uh, uh, apartment, uh, a hotel. And the foundation was laid in the beginnings. And the next year when I visited my parents, there it was. Foundation was laid. Next year, I went to see my parents. After about five years, I said, what is the deal here? There's just a foundation, it's a big foundation. And he said, they ran out of money. They ran out of money, so they stopped building. Uh, And he said, evidently people decided it wasn't a great location, it wasn't worth it, and the investors pulled out, And blah, 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 well, whatever, but a foundation alone is not good. It needs something built on it. And he says, we need to build on this. Just like remaining, like a child is wrong, not building on the foundation is wrong. So what is the foundation he's going to tell us? And this, interestingly, uh, echoes a document that we found. There's a document that's been found from the uh, between 80. They found multiple, multiple copies between 80 and about 120 AD called the Dadake. And it basically is kind of a, a, a short handbook for the Christian life, talking about what's important. And it deals with a number of these things. So evidently, these things were moving around, and it might have actually been taken from this. We don't know. But what does he say here? He says, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. In other words, he says, you know, you, you've confessed your sins. You've been, Now, don't stop there. Don't stop there. And here's that foundation. The foundation, he's, he says, first of all, it's repentance of acts that leads to death, the need for repentance from things that are evil. Now, this is a Jewish audience mostly. And so this is ringing for something he's already been telling him. The works of the law will not save you. They are to point out your need of a savior. So repentance is a foundational principle in Christianity. The next one is faith in Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. There's nothing I do in this. Faith must be in the right thing. I love that idea. It's not the strength of your faith. It's what is the object your faith is in. What is the object your faith is in? It has to be in the right thing. And he says it's faith in Christ. The identity and the work of Christ is foundational. And so looking at the first one and then this, faith in Christ has made me righteous, not the works of law. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And he says, okay, it's time to move on. You got it. Don't go back to religion. You've repented from that. And I might add, it's not just believing in God, not mere intellectual assent. It's a personal relationship with God. It's a relationship that is strong and vibrant. And he says, you're losing the vibrancy And then he says, um, instruction, verse 2, instruction about cleansing rites, okay? Cleansing rites, they would be very familiar with. They're all throughout the Old Testament. Most oftenly, they involved water. There would be oftentimes what they called a mikvah, which was just a pool of water, and they wanted it to be what they called living water. And living water is water that is having flow into it, so it's not stagnating, all right? So a stream would be living water, right? And, and so they would, they would say it's important. There's certain things. You need to be clean. You need to dip into that. You need to dip in. So that's what they would be thinking about. But that automatically then brings them to this concept of baptism because this is what they had been taught and is being taught. So he's taking, kind of getting their Jewish heritage thought, thinking process. And then this, in a sense, I'm not sure if there's a right way of saying it, was superseded by baptism. God wants every believer to be baptized but you don't keep redoing it. You don't keep redoing it. It's a foundational thing. And then he says, um, the laying on of hands. Now, this is something we know was done a lot in the early church and not as much today. Possibly, we need to think about that. But it was widespread in the practice there. They would lay hands on new converts. They would lay hands on recognizing leaders. They would lay hands sometimes when asking for healing. They would lay hands sometimes uh, to recognize giftedness in people. They would lay hands on people who would be sent to ministry or being charged with a ministry. They would lay hands and pray for them. It was a foundational truth. And he says, okay, that's great, but we can move past this. But what was great about that truth is it's this idea, it's a sign that the church is growing and expanding and people are leading others in Christ and people are are leaving to serve. And then the next one, it says the resurrection of the dead. That helps us kind of remember this life on earth is just a small part of our life. We will be resurrected. This is the bedrock of our faith. In 1 Corinthians 15... Paul writes this, and if Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What is he saying? He's saying if there's no resurrection, this is what he's saying. He's saying what I would say. If there's no resurrection, what are we doing here? I'd rather be at the beach. The waves are nice right now. Got a good curl. I'd rather be at the beach. I'd rather be riding my motorcycle. I can think of a lot of things I'd rather be doing. If Christ is not raised, he says, then this is futile. He goes, what are you doing trying to live the Christian life if there's no resurrection? There'll be no power. The resurrection shows us God's power. It's a foundational truth. Now, this is happening in our culture. There are some churches that are downplaying the resurrection. It happened in their culture back then. Remember, there were the Pharisees. But remember, also, there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones who ran the temple. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They just said, this is all we got. So what happened? They said, make it while you can. You only YOLO. Right? So get it while you can get it. And what did the Sadducees do? They corrupted the temple. They skimmed money for themselves. They enriched themselves. They gave into basically almost whatever Caesar, whatever the whatever the Romans wanted, they gave into it. Get along, you know, just go along to get along, right? And get the money while you can, because this is it. They believe that. And it's happening in churches they start saying things like this. You can always say, well, it's, it's, really, it's really metaphorical. It's like new life. It's like, you know, eggs hatching and t- chickens coming out and grass. One guy was, I, I, I actually read this. It's like when you, see, when you see grass coming up through the cracks in concrete, the power of new life, metaphorically. I don't get it. I'm not sure if I, I don't, I'm not sure if I totally understand it, but but what happens, listen, I can tell you what happens. I mean, this is documented because it happened way before us in Europe. And what happens is churches die. Churches die when there's no resurrection because it doesn't pay, take people long to figure out, so what are we doing here? Because, I mean, the surf is up. What are we doing here? And they will say, and I mean, I've studied it. They will say, "Oh, we do it for the camaraderie." They call it they'll say fellowship, the old biblical thing of fellowship, camaraderie. Having friends, being in a group. That's the whole point of the TV show Cheers. That's their church. That's all that's all that is. That's the point in going to a Washington Commanders game. Except, no, that's not a good illustration, is it? I've been to a few Washington Commanders games lately. I went two years ago when the Washington Commanders played the Philadelphia Eagles at our stadium, Washington Stadium, and the place was full of green. There, I'm, and it was noted in the Washington Post, there are more Eagles fans than there were Washington fans. So okay, watch. That's a terrible illustration, isn't it? Now that I think about it, figure out a better way of using that. But it, it's it's their, That's what. It, that's all they want. You take you take the resurrection out. You've cut it off at the knees. You've destroyed the foundation. There's nothing to stand on there. Because you can find a group and you can find friends anywhere. That's not the point of our worship service. That's not it. The worship service is. Worship, and the fa- and we're worshiping God because of the resurrection. The eternal God has provided for us everlasting life. That's why we pray together here. We sing His praises here. We study His Word here to honor and glorify Him. Now the Jews also believed in the resurrection. I, I you know, I, that this would have been something that they would have been. Like, okay, we can kind of relate to this. I mean, if you go today, if you go today to Jerusalem, up on the Mount of Olives is a humongous cemetery. And, ah, did I, I didn't bring a picture of it. Shoot, I was gonna bring a picture of it. And the graves, if you look at the shape of it, the graves are kind of in, it's it's kind of a U thing. And everyone is feet first towards the Eastern Gate because the Jews believe that Elijah and then the Messiah would land on the Mount of Olives, walk through the Kidron Valley, and go through the Eastern Gate and they figured that's when the resurrection happens. So we all, I, I think it's—I think it really is. And so we all need to be feet first. So boop, we walk and we're just walking. We just go right right to it. And so that that's why they do that. It's an interesting thing. Of course, it, this is a sidelight. The interesting thing also is the Muslims decided, well, Jesus can't walk through a cemetery. I'm sure of that. So they put a cemetery right in front of the Eastern Gate. You know, if you're really... Okay, that's mocking. I won't say it. Um, yeah, I'm going to say it. Um, and I try, I try not to be, but here's the thing. If you get to the point where you got to invent ways of blocking other religions from coming true, what is your hope? What kind of hope is in that? As if, as if the God of the universe would go, oh, dead bones, I can't handle it. I can't handle it. No, because what he can do is out of the way. And then in around 1500, Suleiman, a Muslim uh, emperor, he blocked in the, the gate. He can't get through that. 15 feet of concrete. No way. Really? Is this what we're doing now? Thinking, oh man, this gate is so solid. Even Jesus can't get in. If he can walk through walls, I don't think concrete is going to be a problem. So anyways, that's that. So there's this idea that they would they would be good with that, this whole point. But they would understand without the resurrection, you've got nothing. This is the key of the whole thing. The sixth one that he says is elemental, he says is eternal judgment. And this is the one we all like to talk about, right? Um, it makes us think again, life is not everything, Resurrection and judgment deny that death is the end, as many people believe. And you know what's interesting is people don't like to talk about judgment. They don't like to talk about it. I understand. It's not like it's a fun. It's not like you you go to work and on break you go, hey, guys, how about eternal judgment? Whatever, huh? And they're like, come on, Bob, you're killing us here, man. That's no fun. I say, okay, hey, guys, what about the commanders, huh? And they're like, no, let's go back to judgment, right? (laughs) I know this is hard, but ultimately, it's a truth we have to wrestle with. And what's interesting to me is, like we say, we'll say, and it's kind of true, our society, people don't like that concept, but our society likes the concept of judgment. Our society believes in the concept of judgment, except when it's me. I want other people to be judged for what they do, but I want mercy for me. I want grace for me right? I read a, um, I, I saw actually a video. It was an interview with the two creators of the show, Breaking Bad. And they told them, they, they were saying, everybody, everybody in your show is bad. And the guy's like, that's right. That's right. They're all bad. And some of them are really bad. And they're like, what, you know, what do you do with that? And he said, that's why I believe in hell. Because there has to be a reckoning for all this bad stuff that people do. There has to be a reckoning. Otherwise, just be bad. Miroslav Volv is a, uh, is a professor at um, Yale University. And he works, he's, he's from the Balkans. And he works in the Balkans on, with peace initiatives. And it's interesting, they have asked him one time, they said, what... What actually do you feel like actually works in trying to heal these societies? Because you know how this works. I mean, we see, we see it in the Middle East. We see it in all kinds of places, but especially in the Balkans. When, when in the Balkans, when Clinton was president back then, that war dated back to around 700, 700 A.D. It's still based on a, on, a, on a disagreement that happened in theological, in, in, in Islam, 700 AD and they're still killing each other over it. They're still fighting over it. And that's what that war was about. And and they were saying to Miroslav Vol, how do you bring peace to something that's, you know, 1500, almost 2000 years, you know, whatever old. This war, this hatred, because it just goes to generation to generation. This they kill the parents so the kids go, "Oh, we hate you." They kill your parents. Then it kept, boom and it just spirals. And he says, you know what brings brings peace? He says, the one thing we found that works, judgment. And they said, what do you mean? We tell them God will judge them. Let him do it. Let God judge them. And people can start to bring peace into a region. The concept of judgment is, is fundamental. It's fundamental. Now, I know that's hard, but if you think about it, It's almost like what I mentioned before. Ultimately, a loving God gives people what they want. And when people say, I don't want you. C.S. Lewis wrote something that I thought was interesting. He said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. And it's an interesting thought. And I don't know in terms of, that's his take. But it's an interesting thought when we think about it that, that uh, God says, I love you so much. In the end, I'm going to let you have what you, what you want. If you tell me you don't want me, I will not impose myself upon you. And then the end, verse 3. He says, and God permitting, we will do so. He said, let us therefore move. Let us stop being thrust and be thros. Let's move. Let's go. Today's the day. It's a challenge to every one of us. What are you going to do? Are you Are going to sit pat or are you going to keep pushing, keep striving for what God has for you? And he says, and he's reminding them, this is a work of God. God permitting, you're going to grow. And we know God wants you to grow. So he says, this is what we're going to do. So the, the basics, the identity, our identity in Christ, you can't get there by works. It's salvation by grace through faith. The baptism, a sign of a follower of Jesus Christ. Laying on of hands, especially for ministry, especially those recognition of what God is doing, uh, the resurrection, our hope for the future, and the judgment, uh, the importance of our mission. We need to take stock. This is where he gets in our face. He says, so what about you? What about you, Bob? Are you standing pat? Are you getting into just a contented groove of, you know, you do this during the week. You study. You meet people, whatever, you know, you do all the things. Of your, and, then, and then repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Are you comfortable? Or do you need to be pushing more and not being so comfortable? So where are we? Am I allowing the word to grow me? Am I seeing progress in my spiritual life? Or am I hearing and not doing? In James chapter one, James says, don't be a hearer who looks in the mirror. The word of God is the mirror. He looks in the mirror. He sees what he needs to change. She sees what she needs to change. And then he walks away and forgets. She walks away and she totally forgets what she saw in the mirror. He says, don't be a hearer only and deceive yourself. Deceive yourself. Ah, things are good things are okay, I like where I'm at. He says, no, don't do that. And God is saying, don't do that. I love you too much for you to do that. And it may start with, like he said today, a simple decision, asking Christ to be your savior, understanding I'm a sinner. He came to live the perfect life that I could not live. He died for me and he rose from the dead. I will give my life to him. I will dedicate my life to him. I will accept his offer of salvation. may start there. It may just be taking stock of your life where you're at as a follower of Jesus Christ and saying, I need to start moving again. I need to push. Those are the options. Again, I say this a number of times. If you have questions, if you don't understand, or you have doubts, or you don't think you agree with me, I would love to talk. I'd love to talk, and, and not, not, not in a combative way, just uh, just sitting down together and sharing and uh, talking to with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you. The word sometimes is so refreshing, and yet sometimes it gets in our face, which is ultimately refreshing. So help us to be willing to change. Help us to not be stuck where we're at, but to look, to press, to move on to see you working in our lives. There's nothing better in this world than being used by you to accomplish things that we could never do on our own. We thank you for that privilege. Give us the eyes and the ears to hear, the eyes to see what you're doing around us this week. Help us, Lord, this week to look for opportunities to show you to other people. In Jesus' name, amen.